Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. Something's not quite right here. Mother is loaded. We get back to the room. I have no idea how much time passed. I remember lots of pill bottles all over the place. I don't remember the thing that triggered this event. Like, did I say something? Did I do something? Right. And it always comes back to me. Did I do say and do something? Did I make a mistake here? The next thing I know, right? So she's beating me and then she's strangling me. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today we have Lacey Hamilton. Lacey grew up in an abusive home with a mother who was addicted to alcohol and pills. At age five was the first time she was slapped, and she very quickly internalized the message that it didn't matter what she wanted or needed. As the abuse continued, Lacey developed her own addiction as a coping mechanism. It was her means to dissociate. It controlled her completely, but she viewed it as a more acceptable coping mechanism than what she saw her mother doing. At age nine, Lacey had just gotten out of the ICU when her mother took her to a bar where she drank all night and then beat and attempted to murder her in her hotel room. Lacey barely escaped, but then her mother fabricated a series of lies to try to discredit her story. Lacey was removed from her mother's home, but spent the next few decades trying to untangle the messages her mother's abuse had written at her core. I'm not enough. I'm not safe. And I'm not worthy. Eventually, she found help in the form of EMDR and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, two treatments that helped her break free from the thoughts and behaviors that kept her stuck in an abusive past. Today, Lacey is the Director of Operations for Lion Rock Recovery and a licensed psychotherapist in over 10 states. I loved this conversation. Because Lacey is a psychotherapist, we got to really dive into the beliefs, the feelings, that Lacey had throughout many of her traumas. Of course, there's the shock and awe that comes from her story. But what we're really talking about is trauma. And so many of us have experienced trauma and can experience the healing that goes along with it. Lacey also talks about her experience with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and how it helped to heal her trauma and many of her clients' trauma, which is absolutely fascinating. Lastly, I hope many of you note that oftentimes the trauma is not the event. It's the way people reacted to finding out about the event. This was something that both Lacey and I struggled with for many, many years and didn't get better until it was something that we learned. So I hope that someone listening out there needs to hear that today. Without further ado, I give you Lacey Hamilton. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> okay, well, don't worry. We'll just we'll just hop into your deepest, darkest trauma. No oh. big deal. 
Yeah, it's just like a therapy session. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, it is just like a therapy session. <laughs> so you you grew up in a house with addiction. Who is the addict? The addict was my mother. She was something else. Will you tell us a little bit about like what she was like when you did you know her before addiction? That's hard to say. I want to say no, primarily because thinking back and, you know, people with trauma have a really hard time remembering childhood, right? The memories I do have were very marked by her having addictions, maybe the ones that we don't really think about so much, always a smoker, always addicted to sugar, you know, Dr. Pepper and cigarettes for breakfast every day. So that for sure was happening. I suspect that she had started to get into the pills when I was younger. I know that she did pills. I don't know that she did them to the extent that she was doing them the last time I saw her. Was she a kind drunk drug that was she like what was she like when she was when she was intoxicated yeah that'd be a no (laughs) definitely not kind mother was extremely manipulative very beautiful and used that to her advantage when she was intoxicated and there was something happening that she didn't like didn't approve of in some kind of way whatever it was she would do this funny thing with her mouth the way that she held her jaw you could just tell that okay, this isn't safe anymore. She's about to go off her rocker and be really upset by who knows what. One of the characteristics of being in addiction is even if you're a nice addict, if you are in your addiction, you're not able to show up for other people or consider things that are going on with them. And oftentimes you can't keep your kids safe. Was that your experience as well, that she couldn't show up for you or keep you safe? Absolutely. Probably the biggest one outside of her trying to kill me was she invited her brother, who was also an addict, he's an alcoholic, into our home when we were living in this really small town in New Mexico. Don't really know the circumstances of why. I'm sure that it had something to do with his own addiction. He needed a place to crash. For whatever reason, she thought that that was best to happen in my room, knowing that I had a little brother who also had twin beds in his room. She had him sleep in your room. Yes. Surely the listener knows where this is going, right? And so... Uh, it's just the strangest decision even if the molesting didn't happen from my uncle right it's you kind of stop and wonder what was she thinking because even just having someone who's in in that space is a is a boundary violation that is a boundary violation for a, a young girl that's five years old playing with her barbies to have her addict uncle or maybe even not an addict uncle just an uncle in general living in her room. And let's just say that that was the best case scenario. It is still a violation. What are we doing here? How long after did you tell her what was going on? Yeah, I told her that night. So my recollection is that this only happened one time. I'm fine with that recollection. I'm, I'm hoping that that is the case. I woke up in the middle of the night, you know, to my uncle touching me very inappropriately and immediately went to seek out her safety. So I, I remember getting up from the bed. I remember laying there for a minute being like, you know, what's going on? What is my uncle doing? It comes in bits and pieces as those things do. But I specifically remember standing in her doorway. So 
somehow or another, I walked across the house, standing in her doorway, and and I opened her door and I said, "Mom, Uncle Billy Jack is is touching me." And I think I might have said like private area. That's what you call them when you're a kid. And she responded with, do you think you're pregnant? I'm five. You know, like my knowledge of pregnancy is pretty low as it should be. I know pregnancy is, okay, well, you are pregnant with my little brother. And all I know that to be is that you had a giant stomach. (laughs) And so like looking down at my five-year-old self, I don't have a giant stomach. No, I don't think I'm pregnant, mother. Taking a step back, like where's the logic there? Like one, I'm five. I can't get pregnant. Two, if I were, it certainly would, we wouldn't know within a few hours. (laughs) Right. 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 (laughs) And, um, but, and that was, that was the question out of, that was the first thing out of her mouth was, well, do you think you're pregnant? So five-year-old self, you know, nope, don't have a giant belly. Okay. Well then I don't think we need to go to the hospital, go back to bed. So this just emotional violation, having uncle present physical violation, occurred. Then we're going back to this emotional uh, neglect of something traumatic just happened to your child. That's a huge fucking deal. And you're not pregnant. So go back to bed, go back into the room where you were just traumatized and try to get some sleep, honey. We'll discuss it in the morning. One of the things that I talk about a lot that that took me a long time to figure out, too long actually, was that the most traumatic thing about my childhood sexual trauma was the reaction to it, not the actual event. Because I too was five, didn't understand what was happening, knew the person, was just like confused more than anything. But when I brought that to my safe people and got the response that I got, for me, that was way more traumatic. And for so long in therapy, I mean, like over a decade, we would try to process the event, the actual trauma. And I just didn't feel any relief from that. And I would try EMDR and do all these things. I just couldn't. I mean, it was a little bit, but like, and it wasn't until... I realized that the trauma actually happened when I brought it to my safe people and that that was the traumatic event for me because it shaped everything I believed about the world. And my core belief was I am not safe. And I think that's important for parents. I know I think of that with my kids, how I I remember how important it is for me as a parent to really think hard about my reactions to things. And I'm not always going to get it right, but to own it if I don't get it right, to think about it and come back to them or whatever it is. And that's what I hear you describing. It's like this event where you're like, you're adding color to it later on because you know what happened. But at the time you're like, I don't know what is going on. And then you go seek the safety and that's where the trauma happens. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think that it's so important because when I look back on my childhood, I don't feel sadness and anger about the things that happened. It was the response to the things like this total denial of my reality, which is also something that I've had to work on in my therapy and and how invalidating that is as a human being. And then you see it set in motion, your emotional responses to the world as you grow up. If my reality is constantly invalidated, guess what? I spent decades doubting myself. I don't know what it looks like in your romantic relationships, but in mine, 
when I feel like I'm not being heard or believed, I have an outsized reaction. Like I really, and we, we use language around that where I'm like, I feel like you're not believing what I'm saying. I don't feel believed right now. That's what's happening because I get so irrationally upset when I don't feel heard or believed that there, there has to be context for the person in the relationship with me to understand that like, when I have that feeling in my body, I just, it just sets me off. And so I have skills to diffuse it, but it's still, I still get, I still get amped. I'm lucky right now to be with a partner that you mentioned the language and it just made me laugh. I will literally say, you're really hitting on the core belief right now that I'm not safe. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Or, um, you know, my, I have three that repeatedly come up. I'm not safe. I'm not worthy. And I'm not enough. And so, (laughs) and so, you know, I'll I'll say you're hitting on my core belief that I'm not enough. (laughs) And, but the lovely thing about it is then a productive conversation can, can happen around that. I think that's where the growth is. Now, two years ago, I did not have that. Very reactive. My reaction was more of a shutdown. I would just kind of not give a shit anymore and peace out. What I say to my husband is like, when I don't feel heard, I have the instinct to... Like yours is I shut down, right? I want to get on this fucking kitchen table and take all my clothes off and start literally screaming like a banshee because then I can't be ignored. Then I can't be unheard. And when I realized that that's what was happening, I realized that there was a huge part of my personality that was actually just a reaction to how often I felt unheard. It wasn't actually a part of my personality, which I had no idea. I thought that it was like a joke. Like I thought it was who I was. It's so funny that you mentioned that because that's something that I've been grappling with in, in therapy lately is what is actually my personality? You know, the introverted, shy, kind of hangs back, totally taking in the environment all the time. Is that really my personality or is that my trauma response? Right, right. <laughs> is there a difference between the two? I'm not really sure. <laughs> So that, that was at five with, with that experience. Okay. So now, now we've sort of, we've laid the groundwork for a lot of these beliefs. Then at nine, your mom really shows you that you're not safe anymore in, in a much more pronounced (laughs) way. Um, What was that experience? So I flew down from Washington to visit my dad and stepmother in, in Texas. I got really sick. Couldn't tell you what it was. I was in a bubble in the ICU for uh, oh a week. I was nine years old. Had some type of weird, funky, long stuff going on. My mother flew down maybe the last day or two days that I was in the ICU uh, to escort me back. To, you know, I had to get back on a plane to go to go back to where we were living and got out of the hospital. And that night we were we went to the hotel and and there was a you know it was one of those hotels with a restaurant and bar inside and went to dinner she started drinking at dinner i know that she's getting intoxicated because i remember the feeling in my body just even thinking about it of like something's not right here i'm embarrassed when the waitress keeps on coming by she's looking at me continuously I think she thought something was on. I immediately felt a connection with this waitress. I'm telling this because it's important later, but something's not quite right here. Mother is loaded. We get back to the room. I have no idea how much time passed. I remember 
lots of pill bottles all over the place. I don't remember the thing that triggered this event. Like, did I say something? Did I do something? Right. And it always comes back to me. Did I do say and do something? Did I make a mistake here? The next thing I know, right? So she's beating me and then she's strangling me. I'm about 5'1". My mother is almost 5'10". And she is strangling me. And the only way that I knew to get out of this was to bite her. And of course, the reaction there is you're going to release. And that split second right there was my saving grace. I ran from the room. I went to the hotel bar. That's where I felt safe. I was looking for that waitress and could not find her. However, the staff in there clearly knew that something was wrong. They could they could see it on my body and they hid me underneath the bar. So a little bit of irony here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and the only phone number I remember was my grandmother's, my mother's mother. And so she got the phone call from the from the bartender. Uh, she called my dad and did mom come looking for you? I don't think so. If she did, they certainly didn't tell her where I was. The police came, my dad comes, you know, she's arrested and taking photos, all of these things. So again, horrific event. It's not about the event. The lies that happened afterwards that my dad paid off the judge in Houston to rule against her, that they doctored the photos and that my back, black and blue and swollen, and my neck with her handprints around it wasn't real. That I was being brainwashed by my father. That is what gets my heart rate up of like this, you bitch, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> just this ultimate denial of I'm lying. I'm lying. My, my dad is lying. All of this is fake. Right. And it's just like, what on earth? You know, it was this, the theory was it was this giant ploy to, for my dad to get custody of me. And so, and that's what it was. Her husband at the time had to fly down from Washington, wanted to hear it from my own mouth that this happened, would not take it over the phone, wanted to see the records from the police interviews, the court, all of the things. That was a bit of a denial. Like, I mean, there's just, there was so much lying. And and again, it's that it, it was the reaction to the event, not the event itself. The event totally sucks. I think as humans, we are very resilient to physical things. I hate to say that out loud. It is the emotion or t- emotional turmoil afterwards. You can bounce back really quickly from a, a, a physical ailment of source, but this emotional turmoil is the thing that gets carried and carried and carried and carried. That's the thing that gets imprinted like at a cellular level. Do you think that she was out of her mind enough that she would have followed through with her actions at the time? I mean, is that the sense that you have? Yeah, I do. I mean, I I remember grasping for air. And by this point, I mean, she had beat me so badly, you know, that a lot of this is, um, as with trauma, some of this is I remember it. And then there's the conversations afterwards, mm-hmm. right? Of like, they showed me the photos and yeah, yeah. they 
told me about, you know, what could have happened and the results of those, you know, I went back in the ICU that night, literally the same care team that discharged me the early morning of that day, they had come back on shift, you know, this is like four o'clock in the morning, back into the ICU, back right into the, to the care team that I was with, which is kind of wild too, to think about. So as a result of that, she lost custody of you fully. Immediately. Yeah. Without question. Um, didn't even have the option really to fight it. I was very lucky that I actually didn't have to testify against her. They sent a social worker to my house and I got to do everything from the safety of my my home with my father. So that was that was really nice. She plea bargained out. I don't really know the details of that. My my dad knows all of that and is happy to share with me, but I've never really wondered much about that. Like to me, it, it doesn't really matter what she did after the fact. Um, as far as that goes, she did lose custody of me. I got to dictate everything as far as if I wanted to visit her, when I wanted to visit her for a while, actually for several years, if I was okay with visitation, she had to fly down from Washington to Texas and hire a court appointed chaperone. I got this level of control back, right? So we we hear a lot in, in recovery and addiction and kind of like emotional turmoil, this loss of control. I think I think the court system did something right <laughs> in doing that. Of, of I have so much control over this situation. It is 100% up to me and there's nothing she can do about it. I saw her maybe once or twice a year for a while. When I was 16, I started to go out to visit her if why? I wanted to. What, why did you want to... What, what was that decision? About? Yeah, I still had a ton of hope. My dad was actually really great about this is your mother, you know, if you feel like you want to have a relationship with her, try, you know, it's okay if you don't. I did still have a lot of hope that she would change. (sighs) That didn't happen. It got worse. Um, And the lying, you know, just the constant lying. When I think about if I could describe my mother in one word, it would actually be liar. Had a lot of hope around that. She did a lot of false promises. I I remember as I was getting older, especially in college, kind of coming to that realization that I can't take anything she says and hold it close. Everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. The hope was so hurtful all the time. When you think back to those, the lying and, and, and that kind of thing. There was a point where she thought that you were a cheerleader at a school you did not attend. <laughs> um, did you ever think that maybe she's like legitimately delusional? Like, I think she just believes her own lies. I don't, I almost think it's a cop out to like <laughs> say that she had a delusional disorder or something along those lines. I don't think that's what it was. I think that she was so sick in, in whatever it is and believing her own lies. She you know, convinced herself that I went to UT. By the way, I didn't. Not only that, but I was a, a cheerleader at UT. I wasn't. And that she had seen me cheering at the Rose Bowl. This was a long time ago and called me and, Oh my God, I just saw you cheering at the Rose Bowl on TV. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, you're a trailer at UT. I saw you in the little fringy uniform and I don't go to UT. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a cheerleader. So like even the confusion of, um, maybe I'm a cheerleader, but went to another school. It's just not even there. I, I'm, I just, none of those things 
things are true in any capacity. Yes, you did. I saw you on that TV. Don't you lie to me. I'm old enough at this point to be like, okay, mother, you know, and just kind of shut it down. But that was the response. Wasn't like, oh my God, so silly me. (laughs) It was anger. The insanity of that circ of that, like that particular situation, (laughs) let's say, has to be somewhat validating in terms of like, in terms of informing all the other circumstances, because it's so outlandish, you know, you're like, Oh my gosh, all those times where I was like, am I losing it? That's how active addiction makes people feel. If I'm questioning my own reality, then it's you. Cause I, cause I, I know that that's how that makes me feel. And I think a lot of family members, you know, they, or a lot of people, their first experience with addiction is kind of the one you described, not, you know, the happy ending, not the recovery, not the 12 step change my life or, you know, rehab or whatever. It's like this description of this person that just wreaks complete havoc on your life. I would think that would make it really difficult to have any compassion for that population. How, how did you come upon that? I'll be honest. There was, when I first got out of grad school, it was the population that I had the least tolerance for, had so much anger, zero tolerance, did not want to work with anybody facing any type of addiction whatsoever. Now, that's not to say that I went into a triage room and was a total bitch. There have been some stories that I still carry with me, you know, on people that I triaged coming in. I I worked in crisis psychiatric management for a while. And so still stories that I carry with me that are, they weigh heavy on my heart. And I I wonder about those people at the same time, given the chance to work with them at the time, it was an absolute hell no for me. I still really carried a lot of anger towards my mother. And that's something that I've only recently in the past few years come to realize because I, again, I, I shut down, close off, shell up. So anger turns inward, depression all over the place, right? So I mis- mistook my anger for sadness for a really long time. They are related, but, but behind the sadness was the anger. And that came out in, in, in my work with that. I, I did not want to work in recovery whatsoever in any way, shape or form. What led me there was kind of this shift in how I view where addiction comes from. I, I, there are probably a lot of therapists who will agree with this and maybe a, a lot that won't. I kind of had this shift in, in, in how I think about behavioral health and diagnoses and all of the things. I don't like diagnoses. It doesn't really matter to me what... Are you an alcoholic? Are you addicted to methamphetamine? Do you have OCD? You have generalized anxiety. To me, those are all just symptoms. And there's one diagnosis, which is trauma. So that kind of mindset shift for me was really what was able to kind of let me see it in a different light of at the end of the day, it's trauma. I'm treating someone with trauma. They happen to have the symptom of addiction. What do you, do you have any idea what that was for your mom? I can take a wild guess. Unfortunately, the one person that would know and tell me honestly was my grandmother who was deceased. My mother grew up in a strict Southern Baptist household. My grandfather was a preacher in this tiny little town. I know that he was really strict. I know that my mother got in trouble for dating a Latino. That was not okay in small Texas towns. 
in the 60s. That is all I know. However, being a therapist and being a trauma therapist, I can kind of speculate heavily that obviously some trauma was endured from her. What it was, who's to say? Trauma is so subjective. The trauma just might have been maybe this really strict father that was denying her emotional needs. Maybe that was it. Maybe it's far worse than that. And some type of physical or sexual trauma was also coming out. I think about that my grandmother was also pretty unheard of back in those days to get a divorce. Yeah, my grandmother did and went and started her own life. She had an amazing career. I look at my mom's brother. He died from alcoholism. Some type of trauma happened in that household. So you you made the decision once your grandmother passed away to cut her out of your life. Was that something that you had any self-judgment around or had you really made peace with it by that point? I had made peace with it. it it's met with an eyebrow raise <laughs> sometimes here and Always? there. A lot of times, hmm. you know, I, I think it's um, becoming more widely accepted with kind of this not hiding behind the curtain, the the behavioral health movement that's kind of happening. And, and we talk about the stigma kind of going away. And I feel that shift happening in our culture. For a while, that wasn't the case, though. And I think it's still very strange to cut ties with a parent, but your mother, you know, they often talk about this mother child bond and what that looks like. And, you know, even sharing literally the same sales and like being able to co-regulate your nervous systems with your baby, your your baby's nervous system re- responds based on yours. And so this kind of word of unnatural, it's unnatural to cut ties with your mother. This has been something that I've been talking about for at least five years, probably around five years before it actually happened. She was so harmful to my being, even just after all of these events. And I'm an adult, phone calls, just lies upon lies upon lies. And what's the point? What is the point of having a relationship with somebody that is based on lies? To me, there's not a point in that. Right. Where you are always having to defend your reality and they are always defending theirs. And there's no interest in the other person's reality or willingness to hear it or any of that. Yeah. I mean, I do think there is something unnatural about cutting ties with the parent, but there's something unnatural about trying to kill your child, trying to lie to your child, trying to harm your child. You're right. It's an unnatural situation, but the whole thing is unnatural. And, And a child does not want want to cut ties with a parent unless it is absolutely necessary, unless it is so toxic. No matter how hard they try, every time they interact with the parent, they have to recover. And that recovery time costs them so much in their life that eventually that it's not worth it anymore. And, and that's what I see. It's like there's this recovery that they have to do from ingesting toxins just by having a conversation with them, doing something with them, and, and they just can't do it anymore. That's a great point. And I also want to point out the preparation (laughs) that goes into it too. So these before and after, it's just exhausting. It's exhausting to keep up with. It's And it's almost like consistently throwing up a fork in the road of my own recovery. Why would I do that to myself for someone that is not doing the work themselves? Zero interest in recovery because to them, there is no problem. What were some of your maladaptive coping skills 
that you've struggled with throughout trying to find your recovery? I would say that I am in recovery. It took me a long time to kind of come to the realization that I had some addictions of my own. How they played out in my life very discreetly. Looking at me, interacting with me, there was no slurred words and missing of work and skin pop marks or or any of kind of like the quote-unquote telltale signs of um, the outward effects of addiction. I struggled though, and it wasn't, I, I went through the shame and guilt cycle every day, multiple times a day, reaching constantly all the time, big emotions, whether positive or quote unquote negative emotions, right? So anything outside of my window of tolerance, which was very small, would send me. And that was how I coped. I did not know how to regulate my emotions. I did not know what to do with them. I wasn't taught to acknowledge them. I wasn't taught that they were even real. And so I ended up leaning into some of my mother's addictions probably about just over a year ago now is when I just had this moment of like, enough is enough. I, I'm tired of, of, of struggling every day and constantly beating myself up and getting on that shame and guilt cycle. And then, and then maybe giving it up for a few days and then going at it tenfold on day three, right? It, it, it just this nightmare process for me. And I spent so much time perseverating on it and so much energy thinking about it and shaming myself why can't you do it? You're stronger than this. It's a willpower thing. And this is someone who works in addiction recovery. And and it's it's amazing, like walking the walk and talking the talk, right? They're two totally different things. And I see this play out. And the biggest lesson I think I've taken from this is I'm a therapist, but I'm, I'm a human. <laughs> I'm a human first. I decided there was just a lot of stuff going on in my life where no specific event, nothing happened where I was like, I, I need to go to therapy. I wanted to go to therapy. I was, you know, they they talk about constantly doing the work and I'm like, god, that sounds exhausting. Like at what point are you considered healed? And and I I kind of hate that term of you're always doing the work. What I think is really happening is that you get to a point, you're doing the work, you get in a good place. Well, guess what? 10 years from now, I haven't experienced that yet. Obviously, it's in the future. And so, whatever happens 10 years from now, Hopefully, my skills are good enough to be able to navigate that well and grow with it. However, life might throw me and likely will a curveball where it's like, oh shit, I actually didn't do anything about that in therapy because you don't know what you don't know. Like the event in life hasn't, hasn't happened yet. So there was no pinnacle event for me. I was just kind of like, there are some things that I want to work on before I hop into my next relationship and kind of want to get my grasp on and life-changing. I did a whole bunch of things at one time. I got into therapy with my therapist who is amazing. I We do EMDR. She does. She's a neuropsychologist and that's been great for me. I, I, I'm in my head quite a bit. And, and then I started working with an integrative nutritionist and that was life-changing in and of itself. And um, I also did ketamine therapy. 
I'm a, a little bit of a nerd and decided to self-experiment, which I do not recommend at home. Kids, don't try this at home. For my first ketamine experience, when I was setting my intention, which it took me a really long time to grapple that, I did not go headfirst into ketamine. I sat and really mulled over what I was trying to get out of it for quite some time. And I decided to kind of go about it in a, a very different way that I do not <laughs> when I'm working with my own ketamine therapy clients. I, I don't I don't do intention setting like this with them, but a very black and white intention to let go of my maladaptive relationship with my addiction. Just kind of curious. What was the addiction that, that you've been referencing? Yeah, sugar. Totally addicted to sugar multiple times a day, giant pieces of cake after every meal, you know, had some physical issues with that, gained a lot of weight, fear of becoming pre-diabetic. I didn't hit that point. I think really the hardest part for me was feeling out of control around it. No doubt that had I continued down that path, I would have had some more physical health issues come about. Insomnia, brain fog, anxiety. There, The science is there. Like it, it impacts you totally on all these different levels that we just don't think about. And I mean, after every single meal, I was ingesting something. It became this behavioral habit, obviously, of going to the pantry after every meal, doing the reach, eating the thing. Well, now guess what? Then I would create this chaos inside the, the guilt and shame cycle. We can totally get on that train and ride it all day, right? And so then I get to have this adrenaline rush of, of the emotion itself. That would happen. And, and you take away the sugar or, or what the thing is. At the end of the day, like the semantics are still the same. The mechanics of the addiction are still the same. The impact on me is huge. I, I mean, it really wreaked havoc on my life. I didn't want that. I just was fucking tired of, of doing that. And so I did. I set the intention of... And I grappled with this too. Do I want to let go of sugar completely? What is it that I don't... That I'm trying to let go of, right? And so is it the cookies and the cake? Or is it the way that I respond to the cookies and the cake? And what is bothering me more? Because I still want to enjoy a piece of cake on my birthday or whatever. But it, it's really the maladaptive relationship that I had with that. that. That feeling that I was out of control that I was being controlled by something else. I couldn't control it. And then all of the emotions that came with it. And so that's why I settled on... I'm. It's really the maladaptive relationship that I'm trying to let go of here. And so I went into my ketamine experience with that intention. The experience that I had had absolutely nothing to do with sugar, which is not uncommon. And in fact, it's pretty normal in, in ketamine experiences. Obviously, I had some type of like emotional reaction with it because the first thing I did when I woke up from ketamine was I went to the pantry. And the amazing thing that happened was that pause that like us as therapists were always talking about, like just pause and, and, and talk to yourself and connect and that pause is like the hardest thing in therapy to do. We can give you all the skills in the world. I can fill up your toolbox full of things, but to be able to pause and use them, I swear to God, that is the hardest part. It was like time ceased to exist and that pause became something tangible. I watched it happening. I, I watched myself reach for the pantry door. I opened it. I looked at the, the package of cookies. Instead of reaching, I paused and I thought, 
I'm getting chills right now and talking about it. It was like, it was a huge life-changing moment for me. I thought, man, some cookies sound really great about now. And this other part of me came out and was like, yeah, they do. And I just shut the pantry door and walked away. My mind was blown. I have literally never done that ever. And it seems so minuscule, but it's this huge, massive shift in... Not to me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it just... And I was so, you know, self-aware of that I just set the intention and what's going to happen. I'm hyper aware of kind of watching myself over the next several days and weeks to kind of see did my little experiment work. And it was amazing. I literally quit sugar cold turkey for months. And I remember the first time that I was kind of really challenged was at my stepmother's birthday, which was about four and a half months after that. And they ordered a piece of cake for the for the table and and Yeah, wait, hold on. They ordered I sorry, I think I blacked out. They ordered one piece of cake one piece. for the whole table. Big, like big size, but yeah, one piece of cake for all of us. I would have had a panic attack. I mean, I'm like, I literally I even thought to myself, six months ago I would have thought y'all were all crazy and ordered one piece for myself or maybe shared it with my dad because he also had like sugar a lot. <laughs> I took a bite. I was Terrified. It was like the scariest bite of chocolate cake I've ever had in my life. I was like, "This is gonna, this is gonna kill me. This, yep, this cake yep. is gonna reach across the table and kill me." And I was, I was terrified. Is this gonna be my undoing? Is this a relapse? My goal wasn't 100% sobriety from sugar. I have got to start venturing out here, right? And so, like, I had started to talk about this in therapy a little bit too. I'm now that I have the control. I'm afraid to lose it. What am I gonna do? You know, I really have to come to grips with is the control just a mirage? Do I really have control over this? It was it was very, very frightening for me to take a, a take a bite of that chocolate cake. I took a bite and that was it. I didn't wolf down the whole piece. I didn't order my own. I didn't even really want another bite. It it was amazing. It was like, I can sit with this bite of decadent chocolate cake in my mouth and feel the appreciation. The mindfulness that we always talk about came into play, like really savoring something to kind of get into that. I, I felt myself doing it, which is not something that I've really ever done before. And it wasn't something I was trying to do. But that pause still existed within me. And it was really neat to see how that kind of played out. And I was able to do that. And I felt so nice to be able to just have a bite of cake. And it wasn't... That's it. It was just a bite of cake. Talk to me about your recovery as it relates to the use of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, because that's been something that you got really involved in. You work at a clinic, and I love personally hearing the stories that you've told me about people who have used ketamine-assisted psychotherapy to heal the majority, if not all, of their depression symptoms, get off medications, and things that, as someone who is treatment, has treatment-resistant depression are unfathomable to me. I also love talking to you about it because you are so aware of the addiction component and how, you know, for me, when I first heard about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, probably for the first year, I was like, there's just no way someone who has an addiction history could do that and it's not using and you're doing this and you're that and all these other things and and talking to you about it and and all the people you've worked with has really opened my eyes to you know not that this is for everybody but that there is really incredible healing going on 
Yeah, thank you for saying that. I was a bit of a skeptic myself. And at the same time, I felt very called to it. I've never been one to do private practice because I didn't want to carry a caseload. I don't want to see... And I tell my clients that. Am I going to be doing this forever? No, please don't. I don't want to see you here in a few minutes. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way. To me, the, the the power that it carries, the amount of work that can be done, there's obviously, you can't really do an experiment on this, but multiple people have, have said, you know, six sessions of ketamine is about equivalent to six years of talk therapy. The same thing is happening, right? So we, we know that our brains can change. We have neuroplasticity. Talk therapy has the ability to engage in brain change. And of course, there's things that we can do to speed that up. There's different modalities. I'm a huge fan of EMDR. I am EMDR trained. And I receive EMDR and it's been life-changing for me. Same thing. We're just speeding up neuroplasticity in different kinds of ways. Ketamine has this amazing ability to take the neuroplasticity and and do that within a matter of hours. The mechanisms of action, there are so many, first of all, and I think that's one of the reasons why it works the way it does. We're not just hitting on one receptor. There's multiple. If we're going in with both hands, essentially, and, and wrangling with something, think about it like a Rubik's Cube. Could you imagine arranging a Rubik's Cube with one hand? It probably would take six fucking years, right? <laughs> so it's like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially my Rubik's Cube. <laughs> Right. And so, you know, you're, you're going in there and you're able to reset in, in a lot faster of a way. Now, I could talk for hours on the science of that and kind of why it's happening is still being pinpointed by a lot of researchers. So they're starting to narrow it down. They know that it works. The studies show that it works. The exact mechanisms of action are they're narrowing those down by the minute, basically. But essentially, you're going in there and it's not, let's just go take some ketamine, right? And so I have big beef with people that just go do ketamine and you will feel an alleviation in your depression. Okay, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to continue to integrate the medicine that you just received and make sure that you're practicing any skills, you're integrating that into your everyday life, these new feelings. We can go take all the medicine in the world, but if we aren't doing the things, what's the point? Like I just go back into that environment and... So like for, so there's two different types of ketamine clinics and practitioners that I have seen. One that pops up a lot is you go in and you, you just basically sit on a drip kind of deal and you're in the clinic and then you leave. And then from my understanding, you know, and talking with you and talking with other practitioners, the one that they have the studies on is the ketamine assisted psychotherapy, which is typically psychotherapy, a ketamine session that is done under supervision and or, you know, something approximating that, whatever that looks like. And then an integration session after. Did I get that right? More or less. Yeah. So there's the the clinics, uh, you just go in, you receive the IV drip, maybe an IM intramuscular injection, and and that's it. There's no preparation work, and there's no psychotherapeutic processing, and then there's no integration. I do not do ketamine therapy that way. I very much prescribe to the model and don't <laughs> perceive myself ever swaying from this. Of you do the intention setting, the preparation work. I 
personally put most of my stock with patients in doing the preparation and intention setting. That's where I incorporate the talk therapy. Got it. Okay. What are you coming in for? You know, like what it's kind of standard therapy, but as they're talking, I'm more taking what it is that, for lack of a better word, like therapeutic goals and creating an intention for the ketamine session. And I do this every single ketamine session. So they're typically two to two and a half hours long. Come in because I I do what I call front loading sessions. So most of our talk therapy is done in the beginning before they receive the medicine. We're coming in, we're grappling with the hard stuff. They're coming in with their trauma. I've been depressed for 10 years. Don't remember the last time I experienced joy. Okay, what happened 10 years ago? What happened in the year before 10 years ago? Kind of getting into those meats and potatoes really quickly, much like this podcast. And so <laughs> tell me about your trauma. Jump right in and kind of go at it and, and set an intention around that. And it is honestly my favorite part. Like I love setting intentions. Your modality as a therapist comes into play here. Because I'm EMDR trained, I take, I pull from that modality quite a bit. I pull from parts work quite a bit wrapped into that, right? So that's where kind of your creativeness as a therapy and, and a therapist and what you believe works can also play with this. Setting the intention, they receive the medicine and they have the experience. I'm with them in their witnessing, holding space for them, playing DJ. I mean, we're listening to music. I've got lights and blankets and blindfolds and all the things. And some people talk to me the whole time. Some people don't say a word. It just kind of depends on what's going on. And afterwards, then we process what happened. I was a turtle in the ocean. Cool. That had nothing to do with your intention. Let's bring it back to your intention. And so (laughs) really grappling with that. And then I bring in the somatic parts. Where do you feel that in your body? You know, can we breathe into this? What does that part of us need to be told? I bring in the core beliefs, like all the things, all your little tools as a therapist can come into play here. And you can literally like load this person up essentially with all of your things that you love as part of therapy. And essentially, in theory, your ego, the thing that keeps us in check in life that is like, oh no, I don't want to meditate because I'll look funny. That's your ego talking, right? your ego kind of disappears on ketamine quite a bit. And so all of a sudden, it becomes not so woo-woo to go talk to the inner child part of yourself that exists in your right leg. You know, it, it allows for that integration of the tools to happen a lot faster. So you can really get in there with ketamine and pave a different path. I mean, you are basically leaning heavily on neuroplasticity and just that it has it speeds up. Um, by multitudes of time. And that's essentially, if you're really getting down to it, I believe that that's what we're playing on here is, is the ability to create those new neural pathways in such a fast way. And what can we do to, to get in there and, and do that? What kind of advice or su- supportive feedback would you give to someone who is trying to find their own emotional recovery from a traumatic childhood? They're just embarking on figuring out maybe they don't even think they've had trauma, but maybe it's trauma. They don't really know what trauma is. What sort of supportive feedback might you give a person who's kind of in that, you know, on the beginning headspace? Probably the most 
helpful thing I can say is to be a little open-minded that there are modalities out there that at first I was like, you want me to do what? You want me to talk to part of myself and we're going to call it the inner child. And, you know, and that goes against, again, is it my trauma or my personality? Am I hopping on the table or am I untaking, taking out my pants on the table? You know, it's like, which part is it? I have learned so much from just, just try it, you know? And I have started to integrate somatics, you know, somatic experiencing, meditation, yoga, reading the books, even maybe expand your mind a little bit of like, okay, I could see where these things that we used to consider woo woo are actually grounded in science. And that helps me. I'm a very sciencey person. I want the facts. I want the logic. I want the analysis. Learning that these things aren't just some weird hippie shit is, is really been helpful for me to incorporate them. And then I see them working. The other thing is to do it every day. Find the things that work. And it sounds exhausting, right? I actually had this conversation with my therapist earlier this morning. It can be exhausting to do the work, quote unquote, every day. However, if I'm going to spend an hour on the addictive, emotional, negative thought cycle that I can get on very easily, that is exhausting. I would rather spend an hour learning how to stay off that crazy train and using it in a more adaptive way and using it for growth. And I think that's where the bit of a misnomer of always doing the work comes into play. You know, at the end of the day, we can spend an hour either engaging in the thing that doesn't serve us or engaging in a thing that is going to help negate that and help us grow. Well, it's inspiring. And, you know, the stuff that you've been through and, and your recovery and just being willing to seek recovery from from the things that you went through. I think a lot of people have traumatic childhoods, but they get by just fine or they're successful. And so they don't pursue recovery because they're not, you know, shooting heroin. So therefore, I don't need it. And I think that it's awesome that you're doing that, especially as a therapist you know, doing the work yourself is so important to be an incredible therapist. So thank you so much for doing that and for sharing that with us and and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's, It's been a pleasure. Well, that was an amazing episode. This one has so much in it. At the forefront for me was just that idea, like the idea where she'd been kind of going to all this counseling and you kind of talked about it for yourself and digging into trauma and being somebody who's experienced trauma myself. It's like there's so much focus on the trauma itself and that's what it is and that's what we're healing from and that's what we're healing from and that's what we're healing from. And and in reality, it's this the response to it that makes such a difference. I mean, that when I heard you guys say that, I was like, you know, I'm supposed to be paying attention while I'm listening to the episode and... (laughs) My, You're journaling. My, my mind was going off to, I was like, okay, and how was it handled? And how did I handle it? And what did I, what did I think about that? And how did I internal? And what are my core beliefs now? I don't know what my totally. core beliefs are. Like, but that's, that, that's what I wanted the episode to do. That's, that is my hope for people is that they did the same thing and maybe they paused it so they could, <laughs> they could you know, hear the rest of it. But 
you leave this episode, I want the listener to leave this episode going, what are my core beliefs? What did, what did I grow up thinking or believing that, that I still see today? Or is, is it true? Is it not true? It's the experience of it's how something is experienced, not whether or not the rest of the world deems it to be, you know, a- appropriately traumatic. And doing EMDR on the trauma, doing EMDR on the event, having no relief and going, okay, I, I'm broken. Therapy doesn't work on me. EMDR doesn't work on me. Like, great. I need the electricity on the brain or something, you know, and then, and then figuring out that the trauma was the aftermath because it was so messy and then feeling like relief. That was profound for me that she literally had narrowed it down to three sentences that had been driving so much of her story. And like to repeat that story for decades, right? The same story over and over again. Like you become that story. I loved that point where she talked, she kept talking about too, where she was like, a lot of what I'm trying to unpack now is saying what part of this is my personality and what part of this is my trauma or my trauma response. And then that was kind of what I talked about. Like I used to, to be, so salacious and like inappropriate and big and loud. I mean, I mean, really just really rough. I thought that that was my personality. And what I discovered was that I was really uncomfortable with things that were being talked about or going on. And my response to that was, if I'm the most inappropriate, what loud, whatever person in the room, then no one can make me uncomfortable. I mean, I'm still me, which is, you know, more inappropriate (laughs) than the average bear for sure. But it was so intense. It was such a big part of my personality, my friend, you know, my kind of image, like looking back and like, I was actually really uncomfortable and I did not know how to handle it. I was like, that's not my personality. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is a part of my personality, but it's, it's, it, I just, it was really wild. Like, okay, okay. I'm, that's weird. You know, we've, we've talked about in the last few minutes, we've talked about lots of things that people have had to deal with. So on the large scale, some of what Lacey's had to deal with. But I'll tell you, um, there's one thing that I can't deal with. Uh oh. And that's a deck of playing cards glued together. Oh my God. I. I... <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it just, it hits so different, man. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? I had to go a long way for that transition. I appreciated Ashley. the transition. It was really I good. I tried really hard. That was. Okay, but I was just picturing a glued deck together. And then I'm like, what is he? Wait, is that, is he just, is this a riddle? And then I got it. I if I was in that movie Saw, I'd be dead real fast. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't, no, I can't do riddles. <laughs> so I guess I'll just saw my leg off. Do we start yeah, with that? Exactly, exactly. I don't even really want to try to solve this. I can't figure this out. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna cut my leg off. She doesn't have a saw. She's just chewing her own leg off. I've never. Seen, this is like a bear in a trap. It's amazing. The riddle said that there was a key. <laughs> But she didn't want to do the riddle. <laughs> Ashley, it's just an escape room. Why are you cutting your leg off? <laughs> this was meant to be a corporate team builder. What is your problem? Ashley's in the corner bleeding. <laughs> she couldn't handle the riddle. She's like, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't done this before, but I'm not supposed to. <laughs> I know there's an amputation involved. Team building gone awry. <laughs> Uh, okay well i'm sure you'll have that mental image burned into your minds for the rest of your life (laughs) 
Ashley, anything other than that image that you've given us that you want to leave the people with this week? Yes, I apologize for the image. Also, if you are struggling, you do not have to struggle alone. There are so many people who have been through whatever it is you've been through, believe it or not. Even as crazy and wild as it is, there's someone out there who's had the same experience. So please reach out. We don't have to do this alone. We can help. You can email us at podcast at lionrock.life directly. I have helped families who have emailed me, answered questions, had phone calls, text messages. Please reach out to us, podcast at lionrock.life. See you next week. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.